Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, according to the new COVID-19 modeling data from Ontario's Science Advisory Table, ICU numbers will rise even without the Omicron variant. Dr. Peter Uni, the director of the Science Table, joins us to talk about that. Canada's spy agency is warning the Trudeau government that China's tactics to distort and influence media outlets have become much more sophisticated. How can Ottawa take a tougher approach? We'll get into that topic. And not even booze is immune from COVID. The LCBO is now saying, get your shopping done early. Supply chain woes affecting them too. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table released new projections that indicate that uh, cases are rising substantially. Don Kelly has some details for us. Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory tables also forecasting close to 400 patients in intensive care by mid-January if everyone maintains their current routines. The expert group says it can't predict Omicron precisely, but it will almost certainly hit us hard and fast. The panel of experts says public health measures and increased vaccination rates are needed to reduce COVID-19 transmission as cases rise in most public health units. Ontario reported 928 new infections today. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. So let's uh, go through some of these numbers and see exactly what the story is over the uh, next couple of months. And to do that, so please to welcome back to the program Dr. Peter Uni, who is the director of the Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. In our last conversation, Doctor, you did tell us, look, at cold weather's coming. We saw what happened last winter. There was an expectation that there were going to be a number of, of, of uh, increases here. Uh, and then, of course, we found out about the Omicron. Um, how concerned are you with these numbers? And is there a, is there a concern here that, that this could get out of hand pretty quickly if we don't pay attention to it? I think we need to pay attention for sure. So first of all, what is important right now is to uh, realize we're still just in the middle of Delta. Uh, this is not Omicron just causing what we're seeing. And we have a lot of variation between different places in the province now. So some places now really need to uh, start to impose quite a bit of restrictions to be able to stay on top of it or get on top of it again. It's not surprisingly enough for once the GTA. The GTA still looks okay. Okay, holding steady, but other places need to impose restrictions for sure. Now, it, the the mix of of uh, you know just Omicron coming and you know being added to the mix is of course just a, spa- a spoiler for uh, for Christmas, and uh, we need to deal with it. You know, we got better, much better, so the challenges get higher. Let, let's talk about that because, as I understand it, the numbers and the projections that uh, that you released yesterday aren't really even including Omicron, are they? This is just seriously dealing with Delta. And the main projections don't include Omicron, and we need to be aware of that. We have a lot of uncertainty. But what we're seeing, and I just, you know, got new data now also from Denmark, is that what we saw in the uh, South African province of Gauteng was not just the black swan. You know, this wasn't just, uh, you know, a singularity and uh, basically this uh, explosive growth there won't happen in other places. It most likely could happen here too, and we just need to get ready for that. And uh, we also you know, have new data that just came out last night that uh, gives some uh, laboratory evidence now that indeed um, the antibodies that we have after we're vaccinated are less able, not, not, not unable, but less able to neutralize the virus, meaning we really need to get these third doses now for all the people who actually are ready for third doses. It's again a race and vaccines will play a role and some restrictions will play a role. We just need to be aware of that. It seems never ending. I believe it will end, but we have now just this additional bugger and we just need to deal with it. It will be a challenge. Let me ask you about the vaccinations, because and and that's I know a point that you made yesterday when the science table released these numbers, Doctor. Uh, we've talked about things like masking, and as you say, there may have to be some restrictions in some areas. Uh, but but vaccination is still at the top of the list, isn't it? In in fighting this. So the vaccines seem to protect people in South Africa against being admitted to the hospital. What we need to be aware of is when antibody levels start to wane, and that's expected, that's with every vaccine the case, uh, the, uh, the the problems regarding infection will become more pronounced now with Omicron because the antibodies that we're having are less able 
to uh, to neutralize the virus. So you basically need more antibodies to still be able to neutralize the virus when it enters the body. Means we need to boost the immune system now with a third dose to make sure that a lot of people have again enough antibodies so that they can neutralize the virus and don't even get infected. A lot of people will probably get infected and they will not notice if they have had vaccination, full vaccination. But you know, the problem we have is we still have a large pool of people who are unvaccinated who never had infection. And that's those who are really, really vulnerable. And of course, then in addition, the, you know, the population such as people in long-term care homes, etc., where we need to look how this goes. Well, and we've talked about, and I know some people are still throwing around that that, that phrase about, you know, herd immunity. And, and I, I don't know if that's even attainable now, because I, last time we talked, I think it was up around 91, 92%. And uh, we're only in the mm. low 70s, I guess, when you look at the overall vaccination rates for adults. And we haven't even started with the, the kids under 12 as of yet. So we, we can't count on the herd immunity. We really just have to increase vaccination rates, I would think, doctor. Oh, every time we talk about herd immunity, you talk about 85 or 90 or so, and they always tell you forget about herd immunity. That's impossible to reach it. What we basically just need to be aware of, if we want this thing to slow down, Everybody or nearly everybody, you know, perhaps there will be 15 people in the province who, who, who haven't reached that state will need to be immune. And you either get immune through vaccine or through infection. That's what's happening. And now with Omicron, just uh, all these the scenarios, you know, that we talked about before just becomes more pronounced. Uh, people who are not vaccinated will derive less indirect protection through the vaccinated uh, because the vaccinated now seem to have a higher risk to get reinfected as people are uh, to get infected as people are who have had uh, an infection in the past. A lot of people in Gauteng, uh, you know, just uh, there, most people there actually um, have been infected in the past. We estimate it was 90%. And we have, you know, literally tens of thousands of cases per day uh, that are happening there. And a lot of those people just uh, experience infection now after having been infected before. That's an important point. I saw somebody on one of the television programs the other day talking about this doctor. And uh, his, his statement was simple. Look at, I had COVID last year. I, I recovered from it. So I don't need to get the vaccine because I'm, I'm immune. Uh, that's not really the case, is it? No. So uh, remember, if 90% of the people in Gauteng actually uh, are uh, were infected and 36% of the people 18 plus got full vaccination and we see that the uh, that the full vaccination actually is protective against hospital admission what does this mean that you need full vaccination in addition to infection to really just be okay so you need to be fully vaccinated that's the point infection alone is not enough Drop the illusions. It's wrong. What about the timetable for these now, doctor? Because, you know, we talked about the, uh, the time between first and second doses, and hopefully most people have had that second dose already. So now we're talking about the, the booster shot, that third shot. Uh, there was a time frame in which we had to wait between the second shot and getting that booster. Are you still comfortable with that time frame, or should that be accelerated now because of the, the sense of urgency here? Well, first of all, we have a lot of people who are eligible who haven't received their third shot. So I hope really we speed up. There are about 110,000 slots for vaccination in the province daily. We need to fill those every day up to capacity to 110,000. Please get vaccinated and look into it's the same way that you did, you know, in June, July, when we all got vaxxed. That's the point. And then we need to see, you know, right now, this is evolving by the hour. And there could well be that we start to see, you know, we drop the age limit completely, you know, for the third dose, or we shorten the interval. All of that will need to be discussed based on the evidence coming. You know, we still know very little, but we know enough that we know that this needs to be taken very seriously. We're in a race again, as it was, you know, when we had the race against Alpha. And the way out of it is the same as before, this time the third dose of the vaccine, plus, of course, our kids, 5 to 11, the first. And we need a little bit more restrictions, but I hope we will be able, you know, to deal with it in a reasonable way. Let's talk about the restrictions and and what recommendations may be coming forward here. Uh, because I know that, uh, that when that was mentioned yesterday, uh, there, there's some people that were just shuddering and said, oh, my God, that means another lockdown. That means they're going to close all the stores again. They're going to. How do you foresee no. this? I mean, th- th- this is going to be a phased in process, I guess. But what would you like to see happen to try to mitigate the impact that the uh, the virus is going to have over the next few months? 
I think one of the things that we need to be aware of, since the risk of um, transmission among, among vaccinated is higher again as compared with, uh, with Delta, even though the vaccinated will derive protection against hospital admission based on everything we know, that's important to realize. What this means is we need to, again, get to reasonable situations in restaurants, bars, uh, sports arenas, etc., from my perspective. So, you know, what's happening now in Windsor Essex against Delta is probably the same story that will need to happen, uh, you know, in other places or perhaps, you know, in the entire province. That's sad, but it may be that we just need to decrease capacity limits again to 50% in restaurants and bars, etc. We can still do what we're doing, but we get a better balance between ventilation and crowding. And, you know, one thing that we probably can't afford anymore, my friends, in the sports arenas, you know, drinking and eating and then not wearing the masks, forget about that. You know, that's unacceptable. So we might need just to, in sports arenas also, to decrease the capacity limits, but in addition, really make sure that people are masking. So no uh, popcorn anymore. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, that's for Leaf and Raptor games. Uh, we're talking about indoor facilities, I would imagine. There's only, I think, one exactly. more outdoor event coming up here, and that's going to be at the Grey Cup this weekend in Hamilton. Uh, not oh, too many outdoors outdoor is not a problem. That's yeah. fine. If, if it's outdoors, you know, freeze and be outdoors, that's okay. So the, so just for the our, our listeners in Hamilton, uh, for the Grey Cup, yes. But, I mean, follow the masking and, and, and the vaccination protocols as well. Yes, and, uh, for yes, the World yes. Cup qualifying, the masking we, we got a world, is... That's so a big important. part of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. And we can get much, be much better at masking. You know, I see too many people, you know, wearing the mask under their chin or under their nose, you know. Oh, yeah, I just cover my mouth and that's good enough. No, it's not. Remember, this transmission happens mainly airborne, meaning the air you breathe out of your nose, um, if you're infected and don't know yet, is the air that you share with uh, your friend or colleague or whatever. So you really need the mask basically to protect others and yourself. And the nose needs to be included properly and the mask needs to fit well let me ask you about that because there's some controversy about that as well uh, are we using the right kind of masks i, I know that initially you know we, you talked about the the, the n95 <laughs> mask I, i'm holding one in my hand as i'm speaking to you right now doctor uh that <laughs> it's the kind that we're using right now but i've seen all sorts of variations uh right now some clearly i guess would be more effective than others yeah, this is certainly true that, uh, that there's differences, but now we need just to, you know, go back to the basics. The first thing is forget about single layered masks, stitch them. It needs to be at least a, a two layered cloth mask that has been washed already so that the protective effect of the cloth mask is better and it needs to be well fitted. So no gaps, nothing. Uh, you know, then the, the, after that, it will be the medical mask. But with the medical mask, what I see happening in many people is that the fit is bad. So again, make sure that there are no gaps. So you need to, you know, uh, uh, tweak a little bit the, the fit of the mask and the straps, the straps, etc. And uh, and uh, after that, um, or a it could be a combination of a medical mask and then a cloth mask on top, not the other way around. I see that happen too. You know, the cloth mask inside and the medical mask outside. That's nonsense. Medical mask inside. That's the filter and the cloth mask on top to improve the uh, the, the the fit of the mask. And then there might be or there will be situations, obviously, such as a bus driver, you know, if the bus doesn't have its own compartment that is completely closed and the bus driver sits in there. That's not the case in our, for our buses, but it's the case for our subways, for example. So the bus driver, you know, who is exposed more should, in addition to be fully vaccinated and having received the third dose, now also potentially considered to even have a higher grade mask, you know, which could be in these situations an N95 or a KN95. Quick question for you, because I know your time is tight. Uh, we're heading into Christmas season. Uh, that was a spike time last year. I mean, we just saw the number of cases go up considerably. Uh, I know that uh, that you talked about warnings and trying to keep the family gatherings, if we're going to have any this year, uh, to relatively small numbers. Uh, some of us pay attention to those uh, guidelines. Some of us don't. Are you concerned about what numbers you might see after the Christmas holidays, after that that gathering time? It is a problem. You know, last year we saw the Christmas bumps everywhere in the Western world, no? 
and mm -hmm. uh, then uh, decrease again mid-January because it was just for 14 days after Christmas and New Year. So what we need to do right now this year, just need to be a bit wiser and just, you know, just keep indeed the gathering small. Just meet with your close friends. If you if you actually have a gathering of 30 to 40 people, you probably might be more lonely than when you, when you just meet with your intimate friends. That's the point. Be reasonable. Be social, but do it in a safe way, which, of course, means you ask about vaccination status. You should make sure that everybody who can uh, has uh, could receive the third dose has it already. In certain situations, we might even want to uh, use rapid testing. That's a combination of things. Be reasonable, make it small, but beautiful. Uh, and the testing is a key part of that, too. I know your colleagues talked about that yesterday as well. Uh, always great to get the, your perspective on this, Doctor. Thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, stay well, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yes, you too. Good luck. Bye-bye. Dr. Peter Uni, uh, the director of the Ontario Science Table. And, and the takeaway here, is, as Dr. Uni mentioned uh, yesterday when they were presenting these numbers, is we have to maintain vigilance. You know, keep up with the masking and, and get the vaccinations. That's really the, you know, the big takeaway here uh, to make sure that those numbers don't get out of hand once again. Because none of us want to go down that road again. None of us. Mm -hmm. When we start locking things down and saying, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. Uh, you know, we're not at the end of the tunnel by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, if we stay diligent, as Dr. Uni just mentioned, uh, it's going to be better for all of us. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Big summit meeting yesterday. Well, it was done by teleconference, of course, by Zoom uh, between President Biden and President Putin. Uh, we're going to talk about that in greater detail a little bit later on in the program. But uh, the, the topic of China came up, as it usually does when we talk about international relations. And uh, that's of concern to us in Canada, of course, because of what's going on in the, uh, the well, shall we say, uh, tightened relationship of, uh, between Canada and China. And we've got some important decisions to make about this. And, uh, well, the U.S. defense chief is actually warning now that China is building military and economic power to challenge America's global power. Chuck Severson has some details. What makes China different? Beijing is the only competitor capable of combining its economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to mount a sustained challenge to a stable and open international system. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Integrating its information, cyber, and space operations. And China's growing its nuclear arsenal, said Austin, at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, Saturday. Chuck Sievertson, ABC News. So should we be concerned? Yeah. As a matter of fact, our, our intelligence agencies in this country have been talking to the uh, federal government about this uh, for quite some time. Uh, headline today saying that the spy agency has warned uh, the Liberal government, that China's tactics are becoming more sophisticated and insidious. So what does that mean? Well, let's uh, bring our next guest in to talk about that. Phil Gursky is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, uh, director at the University of Ottawa Security Program. He's a former CSIS analyst uh, and author, too. His latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada, from Confederation to Present. Uh, Phil, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Hi, good morning, Bill. How are you today? I'm well. I'm well. Uh, a little concerned about this. We've talked about this in the past, about how, I, and I understand about the military buildup that was just mentioned there in the clip we were playing, and, and that's of concern, certainly. Uh, but as you said, invasions these days usually aren't, uh, but with military ma machinery crossing the border, uh, it's done in a very sophisticated manner. And uh, as, as CSIS, I guess, has been warning our federal government for some time, uh, they're here, and, and they're, they're working their way through here. Uh, you talk about in, in your book, The Peaceable Kingdom, in the last chapter, where you talk about going forward, about the relationship that Canada has with the Five Eyes and other spy agencies. So the data is there. The intelligence is there. I, I guess the question a lot of people are asking, and maybe even some of your former colleagues in CSIS are asking, Phil, is the government paying attention? Well, what, what a great point, Bill, and you're absolutely correct. So my former colleagues at CSIS have come out with this report, and when they do, when they do this publicly, this is a major... Um, moved by CSIS, it's a rather secretive organization, it's a security intelligence organization after all, and when they take the time to warn the Canadians in, in general that that this is happening, it's, uh, it's huge, and I think that Canadians should take this information to heart, and more importantly, Bill, I think the Canadian government should take this information to heart. You know, CSIS have been warning about this for decades, and successive governments of, of any political stripe have been ignoring it, and that, that's rarely a good thing, so if CSIS has you know, gone this extra step to talk about this publicly, it shows how concerned the security service is. And, and as you've talked about, and this is, I, I'm reading excerpts of the report here from, uh, from uh, John Townsend, who's the, uh, the spokesperson for CSIS that released the report. 
and basically saying what they're doing is they're pitting Canadians against Canadians here. It's it's really a misinformation campaign uh, through not just social media. We've already talked about that impact, of course, but through mainstream media as well. What's going on here? Well, you know, Bill, we're an open society, and that means that anybody has the ability to use open media, such as your own program, for example, to get a message out. And the Chinese know this. They've known this for decades. No one's going to stop them from sending out whatever message they want, whatever propaganda they want, using the very instruments that you and I and other Canadians rely on on a daily basis. So this is why, I mean, Jesus called it sophisticated. I, I don't know that I'd use the word sophisticated, but perhaps more more broad. Um, they certainly are, are, I think they're crossing all their T's and dotting all their I's and trying to use any vehicle, any medium possible to try and convince Canadians that A, they're on our side, B, they're our allies, and that there's no ill intent intended toward us. And that's, that's categorically false, but it's almost like they're beating us at our own game bill by using the very devices that we've created as a liberal, secular, open society and use them against us. Well, we just saw a classic example of that yesterday, didn't we, Phil? I mean, when the the, the Chinese foreign minister uh, basically was, was addressing a, a group of Canadian business people and, and, and basically saying this whole thing about Huawei and, and, and the ties with the Chinese government, that, he says that's a fabrication of the American government. They're fear-mongering because they don't want you to think that we can be friendly with you. And, it, and, and that sort of thing, and that messaging, and of course, and of course he substantiated that, or at least he thought he did anyway, with a pretty long story about how we cooperated together as China and Canada, and that we can continue to grow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and basically trying to convince that crowd, I suppose, uh, that, that look, at there's a huge advantage to having Huawei here, uh, and, and which is totally contrary to what the Five Eyes and our, our, our partners have been telling us for the last number of years. But, but you know, people are going to hear that. People are going to read that and think, hmm, maybe he's right. Well, look, at it. a diplomat's doing what a diplomat does. He's selling his country's interests. Our, our diplomats abroad do the same thing, whether it's in Beijing or Washington or whatever. But you raise a really good point, Bill, about the Five Eyes. So the Five Eyes is the Anglo partnership. It's been around since the end of the Second World War. It's the greatest intelligence sharing club on the history of this planet. And when your other partners are saying, we've got serious concerns about Huawei and allowing Huawei to run essentially our 5G telecommunications network, and Canada is dragging its feet, on making a decision, this is in the wake bill of the, three, the two Michaels being held for three years in captivity as a sort of tit for tat for the, the detention of the CFO of Huawei, Meng Wanzhou, by the Canadian government. This is a no-brainer, and especially Huawei is not the only manufacturer in the known universe that does this. You've got Ericsson in Sweden, you've got you've got Nokia in Finland. Why aren't we relying on on Western partners who come from similar mindsets as we do, secular liberal democracies? to provide our 5G network, it really begs the question as to what's really going on with the Trudeau government, which promised a decision on Huawei when, when the two Michaels were released. And that's been months now, and we're still not hearing anything. So I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm not going to go down that road. But it, it makes me wonder what the delay is in making what should be an obvious decision, which the vast majority of Canadians want, and which would be the best for the Canadian economy and our security. Well, and you and I have talked about this in the past. I mentioned it again on the program yesterday. It had to do with the, the diplomatic boycott that the United States announced about the Beijing Olympics. And what was Canada's response? Well, we're studying it. We're continuing to talk with our partners. I mean, get off the fence, for God's <laughs> sakes. You know, you know, as, as my, my good friend Alan Carter Global News once said, he says, you know, buy a copy of the Kama Sutra and learn how to take a stand and take a position, you know. <laughs> And that's what we're looking for here. And I think that's what the United States is looking for. And that's what the five eyes are looking for. Take a stand, Canada. And and, well, you, and I can understand the frustration from your colleagues at CSIS now. Well, and we've been frustrated for years, Bill, on this file. I, I go back to uh, Director Ward Elcock, who, who you know, very graciously wrote the forward for my new book, as you mentioned, The Peaceable Kingdom. He was saying this back in the 2000s, the 1990s, Bill. And, you know, it's it's like we're, we're, we're just it's blowing hot air here because... We've been warning about this, and, and for whatever reason, governments have either just ignored it or in many cases actually accused us of inventing the intelligence to sort of somehow in an anti-China mode. You know, we, we, we are at arm's length from the government. This is what the intelligence is saying. This is what we think it means. Uh, here's some things you might want to think about. We don't have an agenda. This is what our sources are telling us. This is what our investigations are showing. And it, it does really beg the question as to what more do you need? 
You mentioned the five eyes. It's not a perfect relationship. We've certainly had issues with our southern neighbor, especially under a, a, a former president who shall remain nameless. But there's a reason why the five eyes relationship is there. And I can attest, having worked for CSE before I worked for CSIS, the absolutely incredibly sensitive intelligence and, and intelligence methodology that's shared amongst these partners, there's a reason why we're part of this arrangement. And for us not to follow in the footsteps of our partners, when they, they're saying that their intelligence and their best advice is to issue um, while when it comes to our system, and we're, and we're studying the issue? Yeah, I'm with you, Bill. I don't get, there's nothing left to study, my friend. It's, it's kind of right in front of us. It's, a, you know, it's just a do it or get off the pot. <laughs> Well, and as the report mentioned yesterday, this is you know this is not as covert as some people might think. As we mentioned, they're using mainstream news outlets, uh, community newspapers, uh, ethnic newspapers, uh, television stations, etc. They're all over the place, and that's because of the great cultural mosaic of this country. That's a bonfire, but they're taking that and using that as one of the tools. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you heard the story about uh, actually Conservative MP Kenny Chu. Yeah. Uh, who basically, went, he introduced a private member's bill saying like, all foreign agents need to register in this country so we know who they are and exactly what they're doing. Well, the, apparently he was targeted in the, in all of these media. Outlets. He ended up losing the election because of misinformation and foul rumors that were started, none of them substantiated, but people in that writing read all that stuff and figured, hey, you know, we want this guy out. And and it was it was a smear attack. on And that's that's only a small example of what can happen, I suppose. You're right, and it's a smear tactic that's directed by agents of the People's Republic of China. They know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. Your listeners may be interested, Bill. I have a podcast actually on my website. I, I talked to Mayor Brad West from Port Coquitlam, who went on the record of you know criticizing the Chinese over the treatment of the two Michaels and, and embarrassed the Chinese in, in, at a reception. And, and he says this stuff goes on all the time. And so if it's happening at the municipal level, at the municipal level in this country, you know what's happening provincially, you know, you know what's happening federally as well. The Chinese have a program. They have a message they want to get out. They're getting out at all levels. And yes, they are taking advantage of some people in the community. But as Mayor West told me in the podcast, the vast majority of Chinese Canadians don't like the Chinese any more than we do. That's why they're here. That's why they fled Xinjiang province, where the Uyghurs are being persecuted. That's why they fled Hong Kong in 97. That's why they fled Tibet, because of actions that they're taking as Tibetans. So, yes, there are sort of fifth colonists, if I can use that word, within the Chinese community in Canada. But the vast majority of Chinese Canadians don't like China any more than we do. So how can we leverage all of this together to try to come up with a position that the Canadian government can adopt without studying it any further that's going to say to China, enough is enough. We know what you're doing. We don't agree with it. I don't know if we can stop it. I, mean, you know, I like the idea of registering foreign agents. And by the way, you know, studying foreign interference is that Section 2B of the CSIS Act. That's what my colleagues are doing on a daily basis. But it seems to me that the time for thinking about this is over. The evidence is there. The intelligence is there. Just make a decision. It, it, it seems clear to you, Bill, and it seems clear to me. So why isn't it clear to them? I mean, we're talking about Chinese uh, situations here and their involvement. Uh, but but let's be clear about this, though, Phil, just for the sake of our listeners. Uh, the briefing note from CSIS basically names a number of countries. Their names are redacted in the report that was issued to the public. But the government knows who they are anyway. They've been told. Uh, and they say all of these nations are working to undermine Canada's political processes at the federal, provincial, and as you mentioned, even municipal level. And and here's the rub. And and I'm let's lay bare all the facts here, and because I, it, it's something that I know is a factor in this situation. Uh, we all know what's going on with Canadian media and North American media these days uh, because of, of layoffs, because of the impact of social media, because revenues have been down so a lot more now even than before because of COVID. Uh, a lot of newsrooms, in both radio, television, and print, are short-staffed right now. They don't have the same number of people that they did 10, 15 years ago. So that kind of investigative reporting that used to take place on a regular basis is not happening with the same frequency. As a result, it's, it's easy to simply say, oh, there's a press release. Let's go with that. You don't have time to research it. You just you, you need to print something. You need to put something on the air. And it happens. And, and I know it happens in newsrooms right across the country. And the governments of these countries know that. So they figure, let's inundate these guys with misinformation. Some of it's going to get sifted through simply because somebody may get lazy. Somebody doesn't have the time to look into all the details about this. So bingo, it goes to air or it goes to print, and it's out there. It seems to you say that, Bill. There's an interesting parallel between what you do and what I do in intelligence. When you work in intelligence, you gather all kinds of information. And some of it's good and some of it's not so good, just like, like it is for media people. And the job that we have, I think, at the same time, is to look at what we're, what we're seeing, what we're hearing, try to corroborate it from other sources that are saying the same thing. Because any one source can lie, whether it's an intelligence source or a media source, determine, is there an agenda here? Is it disinformation or misinformation, as you say? 
try to gather more more intelligence, more information to compare it to, to see exactly where the truth is in all of this stuff. And you're right. I think media has been cut back for reasons you know much better than I do. Uh, the same problem exists with intelligence, by the way. You never have enough analysts, enough linguists, enough human source recruiters, enough surveillance to do the job. You're always sort of running to stay in place. And when you're placed in that position where you can't corroborate things from multiple sources, and you don't have enough people to go out and get more information, sometimes you do rely on what you have because, well, it's what you've got, and you have to report something up the line. It's not a perfect situation. You just kind of hope that whether it's in your business or in my former business, that you've got good, honest people doing the best they can with the time and the energy and the resources that they have to provide the best information to, in your case, the Canadian public, in my former case, the Canadian government, so they have the most accurate picture available. It's tough. And it's not going to get any easier. You know that as well as I do. The intelligence services are not going to get any more money anytime soon. Media is in a really hard place now in terms of print media and things like that. But we, you know, we just rely on people such as yourself to, you know, ask the right questions and ask the right people for the right answers so that we're, we're the best informed possible because you can only make the best decision possible if you're the best informed. And, and we all know this. I mean, anybody who's watched any of the movies or read any of the books about investigative journalists, uh, you know, I mean, I, I had an instructor way back in the day when I was still going to, to college about this. You know, if in doubt, leave it out. That was the, the th- whole thing. Yeah. If you haven't got confirmation of this and corroboration, from, as you mentioned, from at least two other sources, you don't run with it. And and 99.9% of the time, that's that's the case. But it's that 1% where that information is going to get through, where somebody says, you know what, I, I haven't got time. Uh, and I don't have the resources. I don't have an investigative reporter. They're off today because we have had staff cutbacks. And as you've told me in the past, and I guess we've seen evidence of this, the stories that the governments are, are planting here, the misinformation, their story, sounds viable when you look at it. You think, oh, okay. It's it's not so incredulous that you think, oh, come on, that couldn't happen. It, it looks viable, and it looks like, if, yeah, this could actually be true. Let's run with it. And and they well, count on that to, to, to just get that little shred of information, or in the most cases, misinformation out there to the public. Well, they're not stupid, right? They know what they're, they're trying to achieve. They're going to achieve it to the best way possible. They have smart people doing this to plant this information that sounds plausible, as you say. And then, of course, they also play on preconceived biases. And we see that in the intelligence world. They lead up to the Iraq War back in 2003. The Bush administration had already decided to invade Iraq, and they basically looked at intelligence that was non-corroborated to point to weapons of mass destruction that weren't there. So in other words, the intelligence told them what they already knew. And I think it's the same thing with Canadians. If you're hearing a story and you're already leaning that way, and, you know, a confirmed source or a reliable source or somebody in a position to know says X, Y, or Z, and that X, Y, or Z happens to, to, to concur with what you already think is the case, you're going to check that box and say, yep, I, I, you know, my opinion is now based on something that's real, therefore I'm going to go with it. Uh, that's that, that's what we're, we're like as humans. We we have preconceived biases. We have things that we believe and we don't believe. And yeah, they are playing on that. And it, it's right. It's not just the Chinese. There are other nations. And as you said, the, you know, the, the names were blacked out uh, in the in the CSIS report. But like, come on, Bill, let's call it what it is. I mean, Russia's in there as well. We know that very much. There are other nations as well, probably the North Koreans to a limited extent. But the bottom line for me, Bill, is that you know your listeners and the people that follow me, you have a duty to to do your due diligence to figure out. Is the information I'm consuming the best information out there? Now, you may not have the resources to corroborate it yourself, but at least go to people who have taken the time to corroborate or confirm the information from multiple sources so that you're the best informed possible and you make your decisions. And don't be lazy. It takes time. Um, you know, in your business as well as mine, you don't do this mm-hmm. in five minutes. Uh, it, it takes, you know, hours to get this kind of stuff done. But that's the price of, of getting accurate information out there. And I think we all have to uh, abide by that. And you're absolutely right. I mean, they prey on preconceived biases. I mean, you know, if, if if you have a bias against a religious group or an ethnic group or something, they know what media to go to where those people are going to be going for their source of information. And they simply prey on that and say, and so so the person with that bias is going to read that, that negative story about that group and say, yeah, I can believe that because I don't like those people. Uh, but I guess I'm just looking at the, some of the quotes here. And, and really, I guess our whole conversation here has been for not, Phil, because uh, the uh, Chinese ambassador to Canada actually just de- this morning denied. He says, we do not engage in espionage. Uh, so I guess, I, so, and why wouldn't I believe that, right? Well, uh, Bill, um, if you believe that, and, and I'll, I'll confess to your listeners, who I'm sure, you know, in the GTA are probably all least fan. I'm a Habs fan. If you believe the Chinese ambassador, they're not, they're not um, carrying espionage in Canada, You'll believe the Habs are going to win the Cup this year. Um, they're not. <laughs> yeah, of course he's going to say what he says. Uh, you, you know, he's got a job to do, and his job is to sell China to the Canadian people. So, of course, he's going to say that. 
But luckily, we have intelligence services like CSIS and like CSE who can get to the kernel of the truth in this matter, can uncover what they're actually up to in this country, and advise the government, and in this rare occasion, advise Canadians to a, you know, a sort of a report that's been sort of, you know, obviously not all the details are there, but at least CSIS is saying to Canadians, this is happening under your noses. There's no reason for you not to know this is happening. So now we, as Canadians, we have decisions to make. Do we want to deal with China? Do we want China building our 5G network? Do we want to go to the Olympics in, in, you know, in Beijing? Do we want to do this? Do we want to engage them on that level? I think the answer is no. I don't think it's in our interest as Canada and as Canadians, but we have to decide as a nation where we're going to, and the Trudeau government has to decide where we're going to take this. And as you said, uh, decision pending, well, uh, that in a buck and a half gets a, a small coffee at Tim's, uh, Bill. Exactly, exactly. Uh, security expert Phil Gers, always a pleasure, Phil. Uh, drive safely, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Take care. You too, Bill. Take care. Thanks for having me on. Bill Gersky, uh, thanks so much for that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. When it comes to those uh, holiday drinks, you might want to start shopping earlier than usual. That's the advice from the LCBO. Uh, it says, well, the global supply chain issues we've been talking about are even uh, impacting the LCBO right now. Global's Erica Vela has the details. December is here. The holiday season is upon us. You might be thinking about that favorite holiday drink or uh, gifts for family and friends. That's why the LCBO is telling people to plan ahead because of ongoing supply chain issues. It says uh, transportation issues, problems like congestion at ports are causing an average three-week delay for container ships. Some locations are even experiencing up to six weeks of delays. Now, there are also delays related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Items like some champagnes have been hard to come by. Uh, The LCBO says that also is the case for some New World wines, import spirits like tequila and scotch, and certain international beer and ciders. So that's the uh, dilemma I guess a lot of people are faced with. So what's going to happen? How's this impacting the industry? To talk about this, please to welcome to the program Aaron Dobbin. Aaron is the president of the Wine Growers of Ontario. Uh, Aaron, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could hop on with us today. Great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about supply chain issues and, and what's going on uh, and how it's impacting the industry. And we uh, should preface this, of course, by saying, uh, you know, what a, a, an incredible success story the Ontario wine growers have been. I mean, I, I go back uh, when I started in this broadcasting business way back in the early 1970s. Um, first job was down in St. Catharines. And uh, the, the, the industry down there was, was pretty small in those days, Aaron. I mean, you know, we had one or two wineries and that was about it. Uh, it's it's been a great success story, and and well, there's some challenges now because of what's going on in the global picture, I guess. Yeah, but I think you know, with every challenge comes opportunity as well, Bill. And um, you know, I think right now is uh, you know the you were mentioning about the container ships. Uh, one of the things that we have going for us is our product. You know, to get to the LCBO, we just put our product in a in a truck, and you know, we're on the 401 and the QEW and we're at the LCBO or at your uh, house within a day, um, so we're not we're not as constrained because of those container ship issues. And, and that's the story behind the story here, really, isn't it? I mean, every time, as you mentioned, there's a challenge. Uh, there, there are always going to be ways around this, and and this is an opportunity, I guess, uh, because of some of the international issues that we've discussed in such great detail here. Uh, for local industries uh, to to actually, uh, you know, be able to take advantage of this and say, hey, uh, you know, if you're an an Ontario wine purchaser already, that's great news. If you aren't, well, maybe this is an opportunity for you to try some of those products and say, hey, this is okay. This is an alternative. Uh, There's there's a real opportunity for for market increases, I would think here. Exactly. And I think, you know, um, you know, one of the key issues that's been experienced is on champagne. And, you know, we make amazing sparkling wine here in Ontario. And, you know, if you like rosé or uh, white sparkling or different varietal grapes, we make whatever will suit your taste. Uh, And it's a real chance for people to explore uh, Ontario wines and particularly sparkling and really rediscover just how great Ontario wines are. And, and that's really, uh, it's really about educating and informing people about exactly where the products are and what's available, about, about doing that. I, I got a quick story. I, I think I've mentioned this before on the air. Uh, a friend of mine that, that owned a winery down in Niagara, I won't mention the title of it right now, uh, but did that very same thing. He, he purchased the winery and was impressed with the, the quality of the, of the products. Started to market it uh, through the Northeastern United States and even tried to get into European markets. 
and uh, it wasn't working that well. And he, he asked some of the people in the business and he said, you know what? You're not charging enough money. This is great wine. And people are going to look at that and said, eight bucks a bottle. It can't be that good. Uh, he said, increase the price and it worked, uh, it, which is kind of a, a bizarre story and a weird story. But I think it's what the takeaway there is the quality of Ontario wines are, are world class. Uh, and, and, you know, they've they've won competitions around the world, even in France and in other markets that you would think they wouldn't even have a chance in right now. Uh, but here at home, I think we probably could do a much better job of t explaining to people and telling people about the quality of the product. Wholeheartedly agree. Um, you know, if you if you drink white, you drink red, you drink sparkling. Um, we make a wine that will suit your taste. Uh, a different, you know, every customer has a different price point, um, but we can compete at all of those levels. And we, you know, explore Ontario. And you know, it's a great opportunity at the LCBO. Or if you can't get out to the LCBO go to winecountryontario.ca and I'll have a list of all the Ontario wineries that you can order from and have it delivered straight to your house. What about, let's, let's talk about distribution. And, and, you know, we've mentioned obviously through the course of the LCBO, uh, which is the major distributor right across uh, the province of what's happening when it comes to alcoholic beverages and wine, certainly. But we've seen a lot of boutique stores open up and, you know, whether it's a kiosk in a grocery store, uh, things of that nature in a shopping mall, places like that. Uh, how has that helped the industry or has it been of assistance to the industry to to increase product exposure to to the market it has been helpful in very certain circumstances i think what we have seen is there's been uh the imports have really dominated that space unfortunately and uh, so we would highly recommend that if you are you know walking downtown and you know you see one of those pop-up stores or your restaurant is now offering uh, wine for sale, uh, look for the VQA label and support local, support Ontario jobs, support, you know, a, a industry that is uh, really special to uh, Ontario and to specifically Niagara, Prince Edward County, Lake Erie, North Shore. But look for that VQA label and ask your ask your store if, if they're not carrying it, why they're not carrying Ontario. That's and that's a conversation people have to have. I mean, yeah, because uh, I can tell you right now, my my grocery store in in, in our area here in Ancaster uh, is exclusive Ontario wines. I mean, that's that's all they stock, which I think is great. But you know, and if you're in a situation as you just described where you're not, uh, talk to the store manager and said, "Hey, what's going on here?" Um, yep. You know, just as you would if you didn't think they had the right kind of bread you wanted or the right kind of lettuce or something, ask questions about that because there are going to be some supply issues. We all know that because of what's going on. But this is a classic example, I guess, of what a lot of people have been preaching for the longest time right now is to shop local, right? Exactly. And, you know, shopping local takes on so many forms right now. And you can see a lot of it just, you know, your small local stores, your small, small local producers of all products of all kinds. Uh, you know, it's really taken off in terms of people examining their purchasing habits and trying to help their neighbors and help their help their local folks and support local jobs and that's especially true with wine uh, you know our for our product our grapes are grown here they're processed here we make the wine here and we sell the vast majority of our wine here in ontario and we greatly greatly appreciate those uh, ontarians who are buying vqa and those who may be new to our product uh, this is a this holiday season is a great opportunity to discover just how great Ontario wines are. What's the state of the industry right now, especially down Niagara Way? Are things? I, I mean, COVID's impacted everybody uh, for yeah. a variety of reasons right now. But uh, what would you consider the industry to be healthy? Uh, COVID was a huge challenge for our industry. Um, you know, our export market dried up. Uh, our sales to restaurants uh, almost disappeared completely. Uh, the a lot of wineries, the smaller wineries that depend so much on events such as weddings and corporate retreats, that all of that revenue disappeared. Um, now, Ontarians have really helped by particularly buying online. Our direct-to-consumer sales have been quite strong. We've jumped ahead years in terms of our investments in online sales. Uh, so that has been helpful. Uh, but COVID... COVID really was a kick in the pants for a lot of us in terms of uh, uh, key revenue streams. 
when we talk about some of the things that are happening in, in trade and, and your points well taken by the way that you know there are there are exports there, ontario wines have a great reputation globally and and there are jurisdictions that love to uh, to bring ontario wines in and that's obviously been stopped by what's going on with covid sadly and hopefully that's going to pick up again but the other element to this is uh, is what's happening from province to province right here in this country and I know you're certainly aware, and we want to remind our listeners about uh, trade barriers and tariffs that are put in. We, we always hear the stories about U.S. and Canada trade tariffs that are being put in place. They're still happening provincially, too, which is really problematic to an industry like the wine industry. Uh, here in Ontario, uh, British Columbia, places like that, uh, it's very difficult to get product to market or, or for you know the, the product to go across. I, I, I know that you probably echo the sentiment that I've heard from an awful lot of people down in Niagara that they wish the Ontario government could get together with the other provinces and say, look, let's let's get rid of that and, and have a stronger interprovincial trade. It's one of these things where the, the more places you can get Ontario wines put out to and, and spread to different markets in British Columbia, Alberta, down the uh, the maritime provinces, uh, the much better it's going to be. I mean, you know, as you say, the quality of the product is there, uh, but getting it to other markets is a very, very difficult, even within the, the borders here within Canada. Well, and it's, you know, we've had some very good conversations with the Ford government on this exact issue, uh, you know, and particularly, you know, as people are giving a lot more consideration to if they're traveling or not. Um, you know, we have a lot of very loyal customers in Quebec, and unfortunately, we can't ship direct to those customers in Quebec. And we've been, you know, very supportive of the Ford government's efforts to try and you know, as part of the discussions, make sure that those key markets, particularly Quebec and Alberta, uh, get opened up for us. Um, that because that would represent some very significant opportunities, particularly Quebec. And, and by the way, it's not exclusive to wine. I mean, spirits in no. general. I mean, you know, there's the classic story, I guess, of the guy in New Brunswick that wanted to buy beer in, in Quebec, and he, he was actually charged uh, bringing it across the border because it's illegal to do that, transporting that sort of thing. It's it's a silly, silly law and a silly circumstance. Uh, and everybody yeah. wants to get rid of it. And nobody seems to be able to have the, the right solution. And, and your point's well taken. You know, we've talked to the Consumer Affairs uh, Minister uh, for the Ford government, and they'd very much like to see these discussions continue. I think everything get put to the back burner, I guess, because of COVID these days. But, you know, when they talk about economic recovery, that's got to be one of the elements of it, I would think, Aaron. Well, and, and it doesn't cost the government anything. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the amount of overall sales uh, is not going to have a, a material impact on the province's bottom line. Um, but particularly for the smaller wineries that do small batch uh, uh, runs, this could be huge in terms of, you know, because they're looking to sell a couple thousand cases and being able to directly serve, you know, their customers who have walked in the door from Quebec or Alberta or Saskatchewan uh, and want to be regular customers, but aren't obviously going to fly to Ontario uh, on an annual basis. Uh, being able to serve those customers and create that loyal, that long-term loyalty and stable uh, sales portfolio would be really, really helpful. We were down, uh, my wife and I were down in Niagara on the Lake a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact, and I, I got to admit because of COVID, it's been a long time since I've been down there. Uh, used to go down on a pretty regular basis, but it reminded me of, of another element of the industry, of course, and, and that's, of course, the wineries themselves uh, mm-hmm. open for wine tours and things of this nature. And I know those, those were hugely successful and very, very popular uh, back in the day pre-COVID. Um, is there an anticipation that I, I don't know what's going to happen this spring and into the summer, uh, but you'd like to think that there could be a revival of that as well, because that's it's it's a key driver, I think, to create that awareness and and uh, you know get the product out to and the word about the product out to the people. Exactly, and you know, and I think we've you know all of our all the wineries are farms, so yep. when you go to wine country and you're visiting a winery, you know, there's a lot of open space. Uh, all of the wineries have invested in the safety protocols to make uh, you know make it safe to visit, make people feel safe when they're uh, at the winery. But there's also a lot of open space there, um, so you know people can uh, be very comfortable. The government has changed some of the regulations that will that are make is making it easier for us to better serve our customers on the property. Uh, so and be able to create those. Uh, unique experiences that uh, in a very uh, safe way that we're hopeful that, you know, people will 
when they feel safe about uh, and confident about traveling, that they will come to wine country and know that they're going to get a wonderful experience and feel good and feel safe in doing so. Uh, I got to ask you, since we're talking specifically about Ontario wines, and, and we'll uh, right in your backyard here, we're going to talk about what's going on, of course, uh, down Niagara Way. Uh, is is the ice wine industry, which is something unique uh, to this area and, and something that uh, folks are just crazy about, of course, each and every year. Uh, there's always some concerns about the quality of the crop and the weather, et cetera, like that. What's what's the status there? So we had a we had a good crop this year. The We had some challenges, uh, as all uh, farming uh, industries in Ontario experience, basically after Canadian Thanksgiving with all of the rain. Uh, but we are seeing, you know, there's uh, a number of grapes left on the vine right now that are waiting for the freeze to come. And we'll have uh, another uh, crop of ice wine this year. It's looking pretty good. And I think the, you know, we're just waiting for Mother Nature to bring the freeze. Um, and, you know, we're always at her whim. And it's one of the challenges is that we have as a, as a, you know, at the heart of it, all wineries are farmers. And, uh, you know, we rely on Mother Nature and sometimes she's very giving and sometimes she presents challenges. Uh, and this year, uh, we're hoping that we'll get a, a really nice freeze and our ice wine will uh, be as great as it ever is. Because there's a market, there's a huge market for that. And I guess especially now we were just talking about this time of year, Christmas time, holiday time. Uh, and gift giving. And uh, I know that's one of the more popular gifts for people. If you go to the LCBO or even some of the boutique uh, shops that we've talked about, uh, you'll see these little gift packs of, of ice wine and maybe a couple of goblets or whatever the case might be, some some flutes. And uh, it's it's an, a fabulous gift. And it introduces people, I guess, to the product, uh, which is only going to enhance, I guess, what's going to be happening in the industry these days. So I'm glad to hear that that's going well. And uh, judging from how cold it was when I let the dog out at five o'clock this morning, Aaron, I think you're going to get your freeze sooner than later. Uh, so I think we're yeah. going to be okay there. But the, the takeaway here, we're just about out of time, is that uh, the Canadian industry and especially the Ontario wine industry has, like every other industry, of course, had its challenges because of COVID. Uh, but it's it's there, it's vibrant. And, uh, you know, when you go to the, get your holiday cheer, whatever it is you're going to be stocking up on, you're not going to see too much in the way of shortages, if any shortages, of Ontario product, of course, uh, in the wine section. And, uh, you know, it's it's an opportunity, I guess, for people to say, hey, I've never even tried that. Uh, look into it. And I should also mention, by the way, and I'm going to give a plug, because I know quite a few folks that work at the LCBO, uh, different locations around Ontario. Talk to the staff if you don't know about a wine. If you want to try an Ontario Red, for instance, and you're not sure which one to get, uh, they these people know, uh, and and they can give you some direction about try this one, try this one. What you know? What do you like? What palate do you like? What kind do you like? Uh, Cab Sauve, Merlot, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they'll steer you in the right direction. It's always great to to have that level of expertise, the people that know the product, uh, that can give you that that sort of advice when you go to buy. It's great. A lot of LCBO employees have taken the time and effort to learn about Ontario wines. And so make use of their knowledge and expertise. And, you know, just ask them for the look for the VQA label. And, you know, almost every store has a VQA expert. And, you know, hats off to the staff for taking the time to get to know our products well. Uh, So make use of them. And, you know, just look for that VQA label. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear things are going well, and uh, we just wanted to bring this to our, our listeners' attention uh, because of some of the concerns we've heard about supply chain, et cetera. And it is going to impact some products, especially when you go to the LCBO, uh, whether it's spirits or wine or, or beer, whatever the case might be. Uh, the stuff that you usual purchase may not be available or might be in short supply. Uh, but as Aaron just mentioned, this is an opportunity for you to try one of the Ontario f- products and uh, could change your life. You just never know. Uh, good luck with this, Aaron. I hope you guys have a great holiday season and, and a great uh, ice wine season, too. Thank you for taking the time with us today. Thank you, Bill. Very much appreciated. Take care. Aaron Dobbin, who is the president of the Wine Growers of Ontario. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.